Hello, Village. You're listening to Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast hosted by Forward Promise. If you don't know us, we're social change advocates focused on reclaiming the humanity of boys and young men of color and supporting the villages that nurture them. In our podcast, we'll talk with direct service practitioners, young people, researchers, and leaders in philanthropy, offering a deeper understanding of both the issues facing boys and young men of color and quality solutions for their healing, growing, and thriving. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to an important episode in our series, highlighting the voices of our grantees, fellows, and other stakeholders, and how they are pivoting their work in the face of this COVID-19 outbreak. We work with some phenomenal people who are fully committed to ensuring that boys and young men of color and their villages successfully emerge on the other side of this. This pandemic is exposing the disproportionate struggle faced by communities of color that is and always has been rooted in a history of dehumanization, racism, and colonization. These factors make boys and young men of color and their villages more vulnerable to illness, violence, and financial ruin. So we're dedicating these first episodes to sharing the issues and the solutions they've developed. We invite you to be thinking about sharing, and doing what you can to ensure that boys and young men of color heal, grow, and thrive both during this crisis and beyond. Hi, everyone, and thank you for being here. My name is Rhonda Bryant. I'm co-director of Forward Promise, a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Like many of you, our Forward Promise grantees, fellows, and national advisory committee members have pivoted in these last few weeks to respond to this rapidly unfolding and multifaceted crisis created by the COVID-19 pandemic. Our most vulnerable communities and populations have really been hard hit by this crisis. And so we wanted to spend some time talking with those who directly serve them and how their work is being impacted and to also learn about how they're responding and what are their greatest challenges and hopes in the midst of all of this. So joining me today is Quinn Din, She's the executive director of the Southeast Asian Resource Action Center. CIRAC was formed in 1979 by a group of American humanitarians as a direct response to the refugee crisis that was arising throughout Southeast Asia as a result of U.S. military actions. Today, CIRAC is a civil rights organization that represents the largest refugee community ever settled in America. It works to empower Cambodian, Laotian, and Vietnamese American communities to create a socially just and equitable society through policy advocacy, advocacy capacity building, community engagement, and mobilization. Quinn also serves as a member of the Ford Promise National Advisory Committee. So Quinn, welcome and thank you for being with us today to talk about what CIRAC is understanding about this issue related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Rhonda, and thank you to the Forward Promise team for creating these dialogues. Oh, definitely. So I wanted to start with asking you just what impact has this pandemic had on Southeast Asian communities and what are you hearing from the organizations that are a part of your network? Right. So what we've been hearing is that like other low-income immigrant communities of color, our communities are being hit really hard through this pandemic. 
we are seeing a lot of people losing their jobs. A majority of our community members have already been um, working in low wage service sectors, which have been seeing tremendous amount of layoffs during this season. And with that means housing and food insecurity, meaning that families are just trying to figure out how to put food on the table and have a roof over the head at the end of each month. What we find to be even more troubling is that a lot of our community members have relied on cash-based employment. And so that means that even though the stimulus packages have expanded unemployment benefits, our community members are not able to access those benefits because they have not uh, technically been part of the employment infrastructure to be able to receive um, those benefits. Uh, we know that for young people, the digital divide is increasing under this climate. So while families may have access to broadband internet, we know that each family may have three to four kids who are all trying to access their digital learning with only one device at home. Um, and so while we know that there are schools who are providing some of those resources, a lot of our community-based organizations are having to fundraise for their families and their communities on their own to really make sure that families have the resources they need to um, get the education minimum requirements um, that our young people rightfully deserve. Um, and finally, under immigration, folks are under heightened um, fears around increased enforcement particularly deportation for folks with past criminal conviction records. And under this climate, the news changes every day. Um, and today we found out that there was going to be a halt on immigration enforcement during this season. Uh, but until then, we had not had any assurance of that happening. And while families have just been trying to survive, that heightened fear of being now ripped apart is just an additional trauma that folks have also been navigating. Yeah. And we're hearing too about um, hate crimes against the Asian American community in light of the fact that, you know, people are misinformed about the way the virus started, et cetera. And so we're hearing about some of that backlash. So can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, absolutely. There have been great leadership by organizations like Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, uh, like APCON, like um, Chinese for Affirmative Action, uh, based in California, who have created hate crime trackers uh, to document instances of harassment, of uh, violence, either by folks who are directly impacted or those who are bystanders and who are witnesses um, of these acts occurring. Um, Within the first couple weeks of those trackers being open, I believe there were more than 1,600 incidences uh, that were reported across the country. And there was actually a greater um, proportion of Asian American women who were reporting. Um, so we know that what has been happening is that Asian Americans have been racialized and attacked um, and just for the fact of how you look. Um, young people have been bullied in their schools, elders have been assaulted, um, and folks fear just leaving their house, not knowing if they are going to be attacked that day just because of what they look like. Wow. So 
there are a number of organizations that you partner with and that you work with around the country on these issues. Can you talk a little bit about what they're saying are their biggest challenges as they are working to address the various issues that the Southeast Asian community is experiencing? Yeah, absolutely. I think the challenges are the challenges are really wide and deep. So we're working with community organizations who are already working with the most vulnerable in their communities. And now these most vulnerable community members are also now the most vulnerable to contracting COVID-19 and also not having the resources they need um, under this time. So one major aspect, um, one of the challenges that our community organizations are really dealing with is how do they triage the amount of demands that are now coming up um, with families who aren't able to feed their kids um, or who aren't able to keep a roof over their heads, um, to young people who don't have digital devices, um, to families who feel like there are no resources for them um, and that they're just getting misinformation from the community itself sometimes. Um, so I think for community organizations, there is a huge demand to reprioritize uh, what they can do with limited resources um, while also keeping themselves and their uh, staff safe. Um, we know that a lot of our community members and organizations are led by those who are most impacted. So they themselves are also going through this trauma. And so trying to figure out what to do with scarce resources during this time, just the planning process and the decisions that you have to make. Um, and then on top of that, providing a rapid response um, turnaround services to the communities and the ways that you can now and in the ways that you know best um, has both been really, um, really challenging, but also really beautiful and resilient in the way that our community organizations have responded. So folks have organized food banks, they've organized food drop-offs for elders, um, they've organized fundraising drives for family members who are now facing um, so such drastic financial hardship. Um, and they're also continuing to organize. So they're continuing to do digital organizing for the census, um, making sure that our communities are counted making sure that had this data existed, maybe our hospitals would have been better resourced to meet the needs of our communities, that schools would have been better resourced with more devices to meet the digital needs of our students as well. Um, so while it's been both painful to have to adapt really quickly to a changing environment every day, it's also been incredibly beautiful to see their resilience and power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned the census, and so that always, you know, makes me think about the data that we don't have mm -hmm. about the Southeast Asian community. One of the things that um, as we are dealing with the pandemic, people are continually asking for racially disaggregated data about the nature of what is happening in terms of the numbers of people diagnosed, the number of deaths, et cetera. Have you all been able to make any headway in that regard to get data on the Southeast Asian community? That's a great question. Unfortunately, we have not been. And the reason for that is because a lot of state-based data uh, collection still aggregates Asian Americans into one big category, even though at a minimum, we're supposed to separate Asian and Pacific Islander. Um, what has been hopeful is that I did recently hear about research being done by UCLA 
that has some specific data on the Pacific Islander community. And the data is very, very stark. Um, Pacific Islander communities, similar to other communities of color, um, have higher rates of various health disparities that made them predisposed to contracting COVID-19. And so some of that research is showing disproportionately high rates of contraction within the Pacific Islander community compared to their population. Um, so at a minimum, we're hoping that more of that data will come out. But for Southeast Asian Americans, because we continue to fall under the Asian umbrella, our data continues to be lost. Um, and so we're continuing to advocate for additional data disaggregation with, within our health systems, both at the federal and state level, uh, to make sure that we're understanding how it's impacting our communities. Mm, okay. You know, one of the things that we've been talking to a lot of different people about has been the fact that um, a lot of the issues that we are seeing exacerbated by the pandemic are not new. They really are rooted in a history of structural and systemic racism and colonization that has been a part of the way our country functions for generations. So as we think, as you think about some of these issues, can you talk a little bit about from a policy perspective, what do you see are some of the opportunities to create long-term change and solutions because of the solutions that we're creating right now in the short term to try to help certain populations? Right, that's a great question. Um, so for CREP, we really recognize that we're only in the first phases of relief work and that the work to repair these systemic inequities, these broken systems is really more important now more than ever. Um, the way that we're seeing this opportunity is that it is really the moment to be talking about all of the inequities, all the challenges that our communities have been facing for decades that have now come to light from data disaggregation, for example, knowing that our communities continue to be invisible because we're lumped under the Asian category, now is the time to make that visible. Uh, from under-resourced schools, now is the time to demonstrate how our communities are being impacted by the digital divide. Uh, and that as we become an increasingly digital society, um, both in the US but internationally, that this divide has to be addressed. Um, and that the systems serving our young people absolutely need to be resourced to, uh, to meet that demand and that need. Um, the need for health access to be provided to everyone despite or regardless of immigration status, things like uh, minimum wage um, and knowing that that may have helped families to float during this economic recession. And I think really taking a look um, at our service industries, our essential workers, all of those folks who are continuing to put their lives on the line to feed our communities and our families to provide health services and healthcare, and the small mom and pop shops that provided provides that same um, essential support, but who have now had to close down and may not be able to recover at all because they haven't been able to access the Paycheck Protection Program, for example, or the benefits that are supposed to be provided through the stimulus. I think for us, it's an opportunity to really see who it, where the gaps are um, and making sure that those communities are not forgotten during this moment uh, and for the future as well. Yeah. One of the things that Ford promised that we have worked on doing is helping our grantees 
to access general operating support so that they are able to continue to remain open and functioning and assisting their community during this time. Beyond the notion of providing general operating support, what other opportunities do you think that philanthropy has to be of assistance to the Southeast Asian community during this time? I think as I've reflected on this question, for me, it comes down to trust and investment. It comes down to trusting that the community knows best in how to respond, uh, not just in the immediate term, but the long term of how we need to fix these systemic challenges and really trusting these organizations through general operating support, for example, to self-determine where those resources are most needed um, to make the impact that they need. That is uh, for us a luxury that other organizations have had for decades. And yet we, time after time, decade after decade, have to go above and beyond um, to prove that needs exist and that we know what we're doing. Um, and so in this moment when so many leaders are triaging so many urgent needs to trust them and to allow them to lead in the way that is best for their communities. And I think in further investment in the community is really important. When communities are hurting, that is not the time to roll back your support. Um, and it's not the time to consider rolling back for the next two or three years. Um, as we learned from the last recession, a lot of community organizations did not make it. They did not make it through uh, the, the booms and the busts especially um, of the stock market and relied so much on government and foundation funding. And today, so many of those organizations have closed down. And today there are organizations who are trying just to keep their lights on, to know that an, a foundation has an endowment to pull on and that their uh, resources will bump back after the recession is a luxury that we don't have. And so knowing that and knowing that philanthropy understands that we need additional support and additional investment to really sustain for the long term uh, is the message that I think our communities could really um, benefit from uh, from philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, what words are adv of advice or wisdom? would you share with other organizations that are just trying to make it through these next few months as we navigate this crisis? I think what I have reminded myself of and what my community reminds me of every day is that we have persisted through much worse. That for the Southeast Asian American community, we are a community that has survived war, has survived famine has survived genocide and that using that legacy of resilience that is how we will come through not just for this generation but for the next generation this is a community of southeast asian americans who are now in our 45th year anniversary and looking back 45 years ago i'm not sure if our ancestors could have imagined the today that i have and hopefully in the next 45 years when we look back at this moment we will recognize that COVID-19 was just a spark to our community's history and movement to demonstrate that we are so strong, so resilient, 
and that this is what led us to be even stronger than we could have ever imagined or dreamt of. Yes, that's beautiful. You know, I, I think that there's so much to be learned from the Southeast Asian American experience and that if we talked with one another, there's so much that we could teach each other about being resilient during this time um, and about how we can support each other and pull together as communities across race um, to be able to just make it through. Um, it's a struggle, but we know that we can come through on the other side whole and well. Um, and your community is evidence of that. Thank you so much. Um, th there was one other aspect of our community's history that I always think about, which are the folks who were lost during yes. wars and through the refugee experience. There are, a mil there are millions of people whose names we don't know, who lost their lives in search of freedom. And during this crisis and this pandemic, there are so many people who are suffering and who have lost loved ones. So for us, our, our responsibility is to really honor those lives by continuing their legacy and by building a better today and tomorrow for us, but also for the future generation. So we hope to hold on to the, that wisdom and to really celebrate those lives to make sure that they were not lost in vain. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Quinn, for being with us today and for sharing um, just your vast knowledge about this community so that we can lift up that additional knowledge and they're not forgotten as we are planning and working and striving together. And I also just appreciate your um, support and commitment to Forward Promise and the work that we do. Thank you all for your leadership, um, for creating spaces to heal, to hear one another, and to really think about how we continue to lead together. It is so refreshing to be a part of the advisory committee. Thank you all so much. You're welcome. You take care of yourself, be safe. Um, wishing all the best for you and your family um, and the organizations that you serve during this time. Thank you to you too, Rhonda and the Forward Promise family. All right, take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast. We hope these conversations prompt a deeper commitment to action in the field and in philanthropy to create a society that is fair and equitable for all. For more information about Forward Promise, visit forwardpromise.org or follow us on social media. We're simply Forward Promise on Facebook and at Forward underscore Promise on Twitter and Instagram.